Okay, so we talked a little bit about the why. We're actually going to circle back to some of that this afternoon. Um, now we're going to move into the who section, uh, talking about attributes and skills. This is what we're calling the transitional ministry triangle. Are we on a particular page? I have no earthly 16. idea. 16. 16, yes. And we're also going to be referred, if you didn't get the copies of these sheets up here, everybody get those? Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're, that's where we're going, maybe. <laughs> the, the separate sheets up here, the, these buggers. Okay. Um, was it you who came up with the ministry triangle? Me? Did you come up with a ministry triangle? Yes, I did. Yes, he did. I'm a geometrically thinking guy. He does. He does. He does think. He does think in triangles, which is which is pretty good for a square. <laughs> no. That's 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 the last thing Ken. That's the last thing Ken is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so the reality, page sixteen. The reality is there's lots of pieces at work in a transitional process. Uh, you have the transitional church at work, you have the elements of a presbytery and committees and structure, and you have the transitional pastor. And so the interplay of all of those uh, becomes a um, significant thing, okay? How each of these play off each other, and you can See, we're going to talk in more detail about this later, but um, the idea that in the transitional church, so under the church side, you have session, staff, leaders, <coughs> congregation, vision team, if you're using the go on material, which now everybody is, of course. Um, and, um, and so even in the... Okay, that's in there. Good. <laughs> See how new the manual is? I'm looking at everybody's... Uh, so you have all of those factors at play within just the church, which is a whole bunch of stuff in its own. Then in Presbyterian Committees, you have uh, the Church Development Committee, the Ministerial Committee, however your structure is, feeding or not feeding into this process, or encouraging or not encouraging your process. By the way, you are now all ambassadors to your presbyteries uh, for the transitional ministry uh, stuff. You might have the Go Center um, uh, material that came in, uh, Twelve of our presbyteries have coordinators now for church health, um, and so we're, so that person may be stepping in to help in terms of the process and what's at play there. Um, <clears throat> so within the presbytery, there's all kind of moving parts, and then the transitional pastor and potentially the transitional coach. Um, again, we strongly encourage you have a coach. Um, Jamie and I have a coaching relationship um, going, and so I think we've created sufficient confusion and that place. Um, so the point being, uh, there, sometimes you have to step back and take the whole big picture of what's going on and what the church feels and the dynamics that are at play there. Um, and there's some part of this almost always at play at different times and places. And so uh, at least as a transitional pastor, kind of having all that in mind as you, uh, as you process what needs to be processed. If you look at the uh, sheet that we passed out, I want to do a couple things here uh, fairly quickly and um, be turn it back over to Ken here in a second. So we're under the who section, right? Who's qualified to be a transitional pastor? Um, and so this sheet, I think, gives us some real 
uh, depth to the process here. Uh, this is uh, what we're calling Biblical Leadership 101, the Who of Transitional Ministry. The first part of the Who is the character of a leader. The character of a leader. Uh, you know, 1 Timothy 3, Titus um, talk about the importance of the, the demonstrated character of the transitional pastor as they live out their life before the congregation. Uh, the second component is the competency of a leader. So people will look to... It's not on there. I don't think. Wait a minute. I thought it was. Oh, dang. You're better than you think. <laughs> I'm going to learn some of this stuff here pretty soon. I have in the PowerPoint. Uh, the competency of a leader. <clears throat> in other words... Being able to point to um, experience and leadership competence uh, is an important part of the transitional leadership call. The convictions of a leader and the call of a leader. Um, so at, at some point, uh, all of these need to be demonstrated as the, um, as the transitional leader of a church. Each of those is probably a seminar in and of itself, but we're not going to do that today. Um, and, and by the way, Ken and I have done this a couple times, and it's usually, this is usually over a two-day span. Um, so if you think I'm talking fast, it's because I am. Um, and, and I do anyway. And then I added a number five. Um, I put the Christ passion of a leader. The Christ passion of a leader. I think one of the things that churches in transition ultimately want to know is, has this leader been with Jesus? Is that what they're modeling before us? So I think the Christ passion of a leader comes into play, maybe trumping all of these things. If they, if they have the sense that you as the transitional pastor have really been with Jesus, and they're at all biblical, that ought to allay a lot of fears mm -hmm. and, and concerns. And so you constantly need to give <coughs> illustrations and um, an understanding of that as you lead. Um, The next uh, part of this process uh, that becomes important is that um, as, a transitional, as a transitional pastor, you need to know yourself. You need to know your own strengths, your own weaknesses, your own giftedness, your own, here's, the, here's my own blind spots, or here's my own issues in leading. And I think there's a couple, way to do it, a couple ways to do it. Um, there's uh, something called Uniquely You by Mel's Carbonell. It is a combination of your personality profile and your spiritual gifts. Um, it's a tremendous tool. It's, a, it's something you can do yourself, um, but very helpful. Um, if I'm on a board of any kind, I have the entire board take this so that I know who's in the room. Um, not like by name, but I know how they think and how they process stuff and what their natural instincts are. Um, fascinating exercise for sessions to do. Um, well, I won't, yeah, the examples I could give probably not appropriate, so I won't. Um, feedback from prior pastorates. Um, and again, this is uh, taking seriously what other people have said, um, understanding yourself. Uh, the third thing is called assessing your restoration potential which is right over there. And so after the break, pick one of those up. Uh, this is a tool we've had gotten permission to use. And it's uh, basically, how would you do as a transitional pastor? It's a kind of way to, a way to rate yourself. So if you can't be honest with yourself, then it's not going to do you any good. But um, it's a great little tool just for you to kind of wrap your head around the self-assessment process of this. Because who you are um, as a leader has a great deal to do in um, how you lead and what you do.
Then uh, Bob had uh, a couple little things that came from uh, some of you familiar with World Harvest Mission. It's now called Surge. There you go. Surge. Um, Bob served on the board of that for a long time. Um, but he, he had this, uh, this little diagram called uh, Leading with a Limp. And the way this works, as you can see, maybe if I move, this is our point of conversion, our life up to conversion, our point of conversion. And two things happen at our conversion. One, we've got to have a deeper, deeper knowledge of God's holiness as we grow in our faith. But we also have a deeper and deeper knowledge of our sinfulness. And this is important for us to grab a hold of as, as transitional pastors, right? And so, um, what is it that covers the gap between our increasing sense of God's holiness and our ever-increasing sense of our own sinfulness and who we are? Um, he says that's what the gospel is. That's, that's the God of the gap. The God who covers uh, the gap. And, and my translation into transitional ministry is, you know what you are? You're the pastor of the gap. Um, there's, there's a deep sense of fear of loss and change. Maybe some anticipation that God might actually be able to do something and something different. Um, and so you're the one who's helping them uh, bridge the gap. And so this is... Um, uh, this chart is what Bob uh, used to say uh, is the gospel teaches us to write with our left hand. Um, that it's, it's counterintuitive, it's counterinstinctive that the more we go, grow in God's holiness and the more we grow in God's sinfulness, the greater the cross actually becomes. Um, that's where grace lives. Um, and that's important for us to know of ourselves in terms of self-assessment as transitional pastors, but it's important to know of the people that we lead as well, right? Um, this may come as a shock to you, but if you're going to be a transitional pastor, you will be leading sinners. <laughs> and what may be of greater shock to you is, and you're one of them, right? Um, and so understanding the gap that exists there is uh, gospel teaching us to write with the opposite hand. <coughs> the second diagram is that there's a growing awareness of God's holiness, a growing aware of our sinfulness. Um, it, the greater that gap grows, uh, one of two things can begin to happen. If, if the cross does not grow, if God's grace does not grow in our life, if God does not continue to become the God of the gap, as in this, notice the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, this is the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. But what happens is if the cross does not grow in us or the cross does not grow in the people we've been called to lead, one of two things happens. As this greater sense of God holiness happens, we all of a sudden have to start performing. We perform to fill the gap. And as a transitional pastor, you're not there to be the one who fills the gap. God's the one to fill the gap. The cross has to get bigger. Uh, grace has to get bigger. Um, and, and in the moments you're... Uh, about ready to call somebody something that probably you shouldn't. Um, uh, we, we find that this gap then, if it widens this way, leads to performing. If we have this growing aware of my sinfulness, then we fall into pretending. Um, that that it's, we, we have to pretend that we're something we're not to fill the gap if the cross does not continue to grow. Um, so this is true of us, right, in our own sense of awareness. This is true of the people that we've been called to lead. And I really... We're flying through it, but stop and think about this sometime. Because <laughs> uh, this is the heart of the heart of a transitional pastor. This has to be where we live. Can I flesh it out just a little bit? So just real simply, what we mean by the cross here is that uh, we Christians tend to forget that 2,000 years ago, strictly because of what Jesus did, 
God actually has to love us now. And the more we know about God's holiness, the more we go, I, He can't love me. And the more I see my sin, oh my gosh, we do stupid, reactionary things, which we call church. And, and the more the Holy Spirit can make us really feel that love, that crazy, ridiculous, indescribable love that Jesus has already purchased, the more we can dialogue, we can play, we can love other people. And the less we know that, we just act out. So Bill's point's a great one. This is the church. This is a diagram of the church in many circumstances. The church does the same thing. Where, where the gap, where the cross should be growing in the life of the church and be um, Christocentric and cross-centric and cross-focused, yeah. we get into performing. So if we stay busy, we cover the gap ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and if we think we're doing a lot of stuff, especially meetings and meetings and meetings and meetings and meetings, I have a uh, Hebrew term for that. You, you might want to write this down. Ready? It's called... Blah, 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 blah. And that's what I see in most churches. They're doing stuff and they're busy, so they think they're having impact. It's all smoke and mirrors, though. Uh, it's pretending and performing. Right, exactly. That's, that's what we get into. Um, and so keeping the cross growing and God's grace growing in us and in the church is really the key. Okay. Okay, what are some internal challenges to transitional pastoral ministry? The first, these, so these are pers- we're in the who section, right? And and the translated into Pittsburghese, it's Yun's guys in that is who we're talking about, right? So y'all understand that. All right. The first challenge of transitional pastor ministry is what we call the challenge of pride. It means as a transitional pastor, I go in and say, I can do this. You know, I went to a seminar. I'm capable. I can handle this on my own. I can do this in my own strength. This is really all about me and how great a leader I am and all those kind of things. And we have to be careful of our personal pride um, in this process. Secondly, the challenge of staying safe. Um, What this looks like is my role as a transitional pastor is really to keep peace until the real person comes. That's my job. And as long as you think of it as an interim, <laughs> you can stay safe. But if you think of it as a transitional process, you are not going to be able to stay safe. Which is why, again, the transitional process should not become this next senior leader. Because if your goal, if your challenge is, you know, I'm, I'm not a person who's confrontive. So um, <clears throat> this may shock you, but I don't have a big trouble with confrontation, right? <clears throat> I'll jump in head first. And I'm married to a woman who would rather die than make a tree feel bad, right? <clears throat> There's just not an ounce of confrontation in her. Uh, both of those are pretty bad, okay? But, but if, you're, if you're in the transitional role saying that really what I've got to do is just kind of stay safe in this, you're probably not in the right place for you, Okay? The challenge of fear. <clears throat> what kind of fear could we have as leaders in transition? Failure. Fear of failure, whatever, however you define that. Fear of the congregation. Fear of rejection. Fear of rejection. I, I think most often the biggest fear is the fear of entrenched leadership. Um, the old guard. The old guard. And there will be mm-hmm. an old guard, even if it's a new old guard. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just a guard that formed once you got there, um, there will be a guard, right? And so if you fear those people and those circumstances, then you can't say and do and be the things that you've been called to do. Um, The challenge, 
Where in the world am I? Oh, challenge of control. I have to keep this all in my own little box. Right? I, this, I can only go as far as my gifts and my strength and my passions can take me. Right? And so, and so the transitional period really does become about you and about your control of things and your control of the process um, rather than the cross thing, which is why we had the cross illustration before. Rather than letting God grow and God's grace grow and God's grace grow in them, uh, you're trying to hold on, you're trying to wrap your arms around this whole thing and just keep it all in some box of your own creation. It cycles back to <clears throat> pride. Of course. It, it's a form of pride, for sure. Absolutely. It doesn't seem like if you were asking a session in a congregation to use this time for transformation, then you ought to be open to it yourself. There, you, yeah. There has, to be, there has to be your own renewal. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is one of the cool things about the 50 Days to Vitality, because um, I've seen it. 40 times now, and every time I look at it, there's some new challenge to me. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's where we got to, we, you've got to be continuing to grow in God's grace and your own leadership and gifts and skills. So, absolutely. <clears throat> the challenge of personal guilt and shame. And it's something like this if I really go on to be a transitional pastor, somebody might find out what I'm really like. And somebody might find out my sin and my dysfunction. And it's a lot more comfortable as transitional pastors when it's their guilt and their dysfunction and their shame. But when it becomes turned around on me, it becomes a lot more difficult. So these are some of the internal challenges uh, to transitional pastor ministry. Okay, what are some of the external challenges? What are the things that the church might bring? Number one, untrained lay leadership. Um, people who, who are... <coughs> leading ministries who may not be Christians, <laughs> people who are leading ministries who have no idea what they're doing or why they're doing it, people who are leading ministries as a form of control and manipulation, people who fill in the 800,000 blanks that you can have here. There's all kinds of reasons people take leadership positions, right? About two of them are good. Um, and so you're going to hit untrained lay leadership, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Well, it gets worse. <clears throat> what about hostile lay leadership? Uh, th these are people who weren't in favor of you coming in the beginning. They aren't in favor of you being in there in the middle, and they won't be in favor of you being there in the end. And their single purpose in life is to make you miserable, right? Or to make other people miserable, or to make the people who made the decisions miserable. And so that sense that comes back to us of, of um, the, the process, we're going to talk later on about, uh, you know, having early adopters, middle adopters, later adopters. So, um, you know, some people will come on quickly. Other people will never come on board um, for a thousand reasons. The challenge of divided lay leadership. Again, some of this can come back even to the PCUSA issue that we talked about before. They went through, they had very strong disagreements coming out of the PCUSA. Those things have festered for years. Maybe they're talked about, maybe they're not. But there can be a hundred reasons why people are divided. Uh, I know this is crazy, but maybe family units um, who don't like each other or who see the sole purpose of a congregational meeting is to win the vote. Um, you know, what a horrible way to do churches. Uh, the challenges of congregational pride which we talked about. The challenge of institutional fear and control. And we hit on that a little bit earlier. The challenge of faithless pragmatism. Um, maybe of the uh, 
congregation as a whole or maybe of the previous leaders of the team, the practical rather than spirit-led, you know, that we talked about earlier. Um, and the challenge of leadership weakness of the congregation in general and maybe the leader in particular. Um, again, if you're following someone who was not a great leader, you can say, well, at least I'll look better than that person. Uh, maybe that's the good news. I don't know if there is good news. The bad news is people aren't used to leadership. And when a leader hits them, it's like being hit by a truck. Um, they're just not ready for somebody to lead a process like you're being called to lead the process. And so, again, the fear of kind of staying away from any of those kinds of things uh, becomes important. So here's one of the uh, questions I always ask a session when I go for the first time. And, and most of the time, the house is on fire. You know, we hope Christ comes in the next five minutes because we're going to die without a pastor and we're having that first conversation. But I try to turn that around a little bit. And here's what I ask the session. What responsibility or what culpability do you have as a session for the current state of the church? What responsibility or what culpability do you have for the current state of the church? That is a fascinating question. Because um, you will learn more about them in response to that question than almost anything else you can do. It, it's the tone setter um, and stimulates all kinds of interesting things. So, <clears throat> You would just start off with that? I mean, that's a, is that the kickoff? Well, not to kick off, but it comes sort of toward the middle. Yeah. Um, so, oh, and you can see the little graphic over here. Old habits and change. So, um, transitional leadership styles. Um, all of you have a leadership style, right? All of you have, have ways to lead. Um, one of them could be micromanagement. Um, you know, you want to be, nothing's going to happen unless you're involved in every decision. Uh, laissez-faire is your project in good shape apparently silence we started it five years ago and no one has stopped us yet um, so just kind of like hey whatever happens I'm just a transitional person let's let her rip and you guys do what you feel like and if I see something I'll say something though I probably won't and you know that kind of thing and then what we're calling form versus freedom um, and, and here's a line that Bob used to use. The task of a transitioner pastor is to build a, a fence around the pasture and let the people roam in the pasture. Now, the size of the pasture depends on the level of crisis. So, if you're, if you're coming to a church in crisis, your pastor gets very small. Fences are tight. Structure's tight. Things are tight. If you're moving into a relatively healthy environment, however you define that, then the fences can be extended, more room for people to go. So you're always thinking in terms of uh, giving the church as much freedom as you can, determined by the level of crisis. As much freedom as you can, but it's determined by the level of crisis they're in. And the God of the Gap. Um, I love this passage out of 2 Corinthians. Um, for uh, the kind of the purpose statement of who we are as transitional pastors. Um, and uh, again, it's good to pull us back to the biblical models. So am I where you are now? Uh, I have no idea no, where I am. Go to 17. Oh, okay. Got it. Okay. 
Transitional pastor qualifications discussion. We'll uh, skip over that for the moment. Models of transitional pastors. I, I like this part because um, it's something for us to think about as we become. So we're on page something, 17, right? Yep. Yeah. Awesome. The first is what, is what I call, this is part of what I was working on with Bob, I call it the disruption model. Um, what's that look like as a transitional pastor going in? Fur flies. Yeah. Hey, I'm here to mess you up. Right? I'm just here to bring, ch- I don't even know what change, I don't even care what change, but whatever you're doing obviously is not working, so we're going to do something different. So the disruption model is, no matter what else happens, the status quo will not be the status quo by the time I'm done here. Right? So that becomes the primary driving force of what happens. Second, we call a savior complex. It's not hard to figure this one out. What's, what's that mean? I'm here, to save I'm here to save you. You people are so lucky to have me here. You know, God sent Jesus to earth to save people, to form the church, just so I could be here with you. And you are blessed to have me. So, I'll take it from here, right? Everything's under control. I'm going to save you. Even though you're so messed up now, by the time I'm done with you, operative words being, I'm done with you, right? Uh, everything's going to be fine because I'm here to save you. Okay? Then the control model. <laughs> Basically, this sounds like, listen, nothing happens here without running through me. Right? There's not going to be a decision made. There's not going to be a thing done. There's not going to be a task accomplished. There's not going to be one thing voted on unless it comes through me. Because I'm here as the transitional pastor, and I went to the General Assembly training, and so I know exactly what I'm doing, and I'm here to control the process. And, and we, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to chuckle at these. If you, in my world, I can be with somebody like 10 minutes, and I know where they're coming from, Right? Don't rock the boat model. My goal is to keep everything as calm as possible until we get a real person in here. <clears throat> right? Until the real pastor comes. So the idea is keep calm. Let's not do anything crazy. We're not going to take risks. We're not going to jump out of the boat. That Peter stuff, I know it worked out well for him in the end, but we're not jumping out of any boats. We're not setting anything on fire. We're not stopping anything. We're not starting anything. We're just here to be the Sea of Galilee in its calmest phase. Okay? And then the high truth, high grace model. And I, I, we put this in here for a very particular... Is there something in here? <laughs> Look at that. Way to go, Suzanne. I honestly know, never know what's coming up next. So... Um, So when you look at this on a continuum, there's two things that you need to understand as a transitional pastor. A, you need to know yourself. And B, you need to know the church. You need to know yourself. You need to know the church. All of us tend to operate in one of these quadrants, right? I mean, we can be gifted enough to move outside of it. But by nature, we we work in one of these these quadrants. So you have um, high truth, high grace, okay? Um, which is a great model to, to operate from if you're operating well. Uh, high truth, low grace. What does that look like? <coughs> TR. Legalism. TR, legalism. Right. So the, the truth part, always you always lead with truth and try to work your way back to a little bit of grace. Mm-hmm. Right? And there, some of us are by nature like that. Right? Okay, low truth, low grace. 
Not too hard to figure that one out, is it? <coughs> Low truth, high grace. What's that look like? PCUSA. <laughs> <laughs> let's, not, let's not mention names now. <clears throat> Sorry, it just came out. We don't, use, we don't use the P word around here. Yeah. So, okay. so, <clears throat> so, yeah. So, low truth, um, you know, everything's kind of relative. We're not driven particularly by principle or scripture. Just everybody's love. It's all love. It's all grace. It's all good. So, now the clash comes when, what if you are a um, high truth, low grace person, and the church is a low truth, high grace church? You know, first of all, you come off to them like, what planet did you just land from? You know, and whatever one it was, would suggest you go back as quickly as possible, um, <clears throat> and vice versa, right? So the interaction of truth and grace and how we function both individually and how we function as a congregation um, fits into that model. Okay? Quick questions? Good? Okay, we're going to get to the heavy material later. So, hmm. Bob, yeah. you're saying these are just... We look at those as just realities, or we look at those to, not to change, but just to recognize ourselves in the church. Yeah. Well, I would, I would hope aspirationally that this is where we all want to be and where we all want the church to be. By nature, <laughs> that's, that's probably not all of our first instinct. I mean, it is mine, but... Ken tried not to laugh, but he didn't succeed. <clears throat> okay. I didn't try that. Uh, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm so, but you understand what I'm saying? That there's our whatever reality we kind of default to. Maybe that's the best way to put it. We have a default position that we go to, and churches have a default position that they go to, and we need to be aware of what that is in us and what that is in the church as we move into the transitional leadership. Okay. Cool. Now you? Sure. You doing this one? Or? No. Okay. I'm just going to go ahead and jump. because. Okay, good. Wise. Good. <clears throat> we'll jump back to some things later. Transitional presenter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now you. Yeah. What we're going to do is take some, uh, some, rearrange the order a little bit because this afternoon uh, I'll be with the introduction group and not in here. So we want to make sure we get a, uh, a look at some of the things I know a little bit about uh, before I leave the building, as it were. <laughs> okay, if you'll turn over to page 28. Let me... Uh, yeah, let me catch up our PowerPoint to where I am going to be. As soon as... I'm hoping it's going to be there. I tell you what, Bill, would you push that button until you see something about missional postures? Got it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, one of the things that we've uh, realized over the years is that, of course, every church is a slightly different place. Uh, if you're going in as a transitional pastor or serving in any role, uh, 
and you're talking about uh, some kind of revitalization. You know, the, the goal is to move the needle. Regardless of how healthy a church might be, it can always be healthier. Uh, one of the things I run into a great deal among churches that uh, have a self-perception of being healthy and may in fact actually be pretty healthy, uh, the thing that still remains missing often is uh, they're not experiencing that much in the way of conversion growth. Mm -hmm. So there's always a little headroom there. There's always an improvement, uh, a transformation that can be made regardless of where you might be in terms of health. But uh, it helps to know what's the starting point. You know, where are you at the beginning of a process? In this case, if you're going in as a transitional pastor, where, what's, what's, what's the starting line for that church in your particular role? Now, we, of course, uh, are pretty fond of the Great Commission. We, we uh, think of ourselves to some degree as Great Commission advocates. And there's this word floating around in Christendom these days called missional, which, of course, isn't really a word, right? When you type missional on your computer, a little red squiggly line comes out because it's not even recognized as a word. But all missional means really is what, you know, what, what is your level of commitment to being great commissional? Okay, that's how we're using this word. How committed are you to Great Commission ministry? Well, what we've discovered is that churches at any given point tend to be uh, at one of five different places as it relates to their missionality, if we can make up another word. Okay, uh, first of all, the church might be anti-missional. Okay, there are times when just the thought of someone really focusing on outreach and evangelism, using words like missional, the church doesn't want to hear about it. They're too, quote, <coughs> pure. Okay, I have had situations where a pastor or a leader would sort of boast to me about how small that church had become reasoning that that somehow was an indicator of, of how they haven't compromised with anything. Okay, so uh, we have those who are anti-missional. Well, if you're going in with a missional agenda into an anti-missional culture, uh, might need to rethink that whole plan. Probably it's going to be a collision. Okay, the role of transitional pastor is not to collide with the existing congregation. And if you are going to be in a case such as that, just, just be real about it and recognize that, hey, overnight this church is not going to become this, this tremendously committed outreach and evangelism church. So knowing where you start helps you understand how far you can go. All right, secondly, non-missional. This would be a church where leadership is more or less unaware or, or ambivalent to this whole idea of, uh, of conversion growth being that big a thing. Uh, this church is more content to simply have its routines, its service. You know, I call it the seven-day loop. You know, here comes Sunday, every seven days, ready or not. 
and we go through our religious practices, the motions of hosting services and whatnot, and we're not really dialed in uh, to the idea of having an evangelistic outcome to what we're doing. Uh, Pre-missional would suggest that a church is leaning toward missional. We're starting to dial in. We're starting to wonder why we aren't seeing more conversion growth. We're wondering how to get there. So we're, we're headed in that direction. Uh, the pro-missional church would be the church that's completely dialed in, uh, making very deliberate, intentional efforts to be missional. Which brings us to the last group, the post-missional group. Now, this group takes on a couple of uh, flavors. One flavor would be, we did that missional thing five years ago. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of done. You know, we, we grew a little bit, uh, and we're, we're not sure that uh, we want to go that route again. Uh, it's in the revitalization world, what I run into a lot is churches that say, well, you know, in the last 25 years, we've been through three complete revitalization programs. We don't really have much to show for it. So why would we do it again? Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. Another post-missional uh, uh, way of thinking is uh, we've arrived. We set a target of out, for outreach and evangelism, and, and we've, we've hit that target. Therefore, we can, we can drop back. You know, being committed to outreach and evangelism takes a lot of effort, and it's an ongoing effort. But we did that. Uh, we added 10 new people, 20 new people, five new families, whatever. Our offering is up. We're a little more stable than we were, and there's a sense of having arrived. So we can take the foot off the pedal, kind of kick back into more of a routine uh, mode. Now we have a uh, we have an assessment tool that we use with churches to help determine where your missional posture is. Uh, and so if you want to pursue that further, you know, be in touch with us and we'll make that tool available. Ken, what's that tool called? I think it's the, is it the appendix. Uh, it, it might be. Yeah, it might be in the appendix. Missional Posture Survey is what it's called. It is. Uh, it's one of those uh, sort of just check check your gut kind of things to see what's there. I realize that some of these things are are a bit mysterious. Uh, but when you, know, when you ask enough questions and, and track with people on this, uh, you, know, you, can, you can sort of establish a baseline. And just for, uh, uh, you know, for the sake of recognizing what, uh, what your contribution as a transitional pastor uh, was doing your 18-month or two-year tenure or whatever it might be. It's interesting to to redo a survey such as this at the end of your tenure, just to kind of see did we did we move the needle in this area? Uh, one of the things the Go Center uh, gets asked a fair amount is uh, to provide some kind of empirical metrics in regard to how effective what we do is. Uh, 
Well, that's very difficult to determine, you know, because when you go into a church and begin to push toward uh, a more great commissional approach, uh, you might actually lose a few people before you start gaining people. So measuring something like attendance isn't really telling the story. You know, we need some tools that will tell us more than that. And this is one of those tools. You know, if we can move the missional posture, you know, one degree toward missional, then I would say that's a win. But it's going to be very different if you started at, say, non-missional than if you started at pre-missional. So it helps to know where are we at the beginning, where were we when we made the handoff to the incoming new pastor. And that would be good information for that pastor to have as well. All right, now let's talk about life cycle for a little bit. Um, how many of you have already seen a presentation of the Go Center in regard to life cycle? Okay, looks like about half. Okay, so I'm going to do a halfway job on this. Okay, I won't go into like super duper duper depth because so many of you have already seen it before, but we will go a little bit. All right, you see on your page there, page 29, we break the life cycle into, into three what we call macro stages, incline, recline, decline. Uh, the one thing I want to emphasize on the front end has to do with ministry capacity, <coughs> ministry capacity. What is our capacity to minister? How much ministry can our church provide and how well can we provide it? So the inclining church is a church that's expanding its ministry capacity. You know, over time we're able to do more and more ministry and we're doing that ministry better and better. The reclining church is a church that has leveled off into a static ministry capacity. We're doing the same kinds of ministries at the same levels over and over and over again. In fact, that's the goal, to maintain, to sustain that ministry over time. Not gaining ground, not perceptibly losing ground, but uh, the truth is we're either growing or we're declining. Recline is a little bit of a myth, okay? But a lot of churches sit there in this plateau of recline, just repeating what they're doing as long as they can sustain it. Now, the church in, that's declining is losing ministry capacity. We're doing less and less ministry over time. The quality of that ministry is, uh, is greatly compromised uh, the deeper we go into the life cycle. Uh, now, a couple of uh, principles to have in view. First of all, uh, this is kind of... Oh, wait a minute. Okay, that looks different. Uh, moderate to severe. Oh, here we are. Vitalization over time. The catch-22, or the double jeopardy, of working with a church that's declining is that when a church is declining, it's got the most work to do to turn things around. 
Okay? Uh, the principle that you see on your page there is that vitalization is going to range from moderate to severe depending on the life cycle stage. So if you enter into uh, some kind of revitalization while the church is still on the upside of the life cycle, you're talking about very moderate adjustments. On the backside of the life cycle, more severe. But on the backside of the life cycle, you, you've got a, a, a weaker church. Okay, so double jeopardy. The weaker you are, the more there is to do. Now, the reason this is so relevant when you're talking about transition is that we know statistically that over 80% of churches are in plateau or decline. So when you step into the role of transitional pastor, there's an 8 out of 10 chance that you're stepping into a reclined or declined church. Okay? So that's how these, these two worlds connect. The world of revitalization and the world of transition are in large part the same world. Okay? What's next there, Bill? Okay. Let's turn to page 30. These are already printed out for you, which uh, normally I do kind of a fill-in-the-blank thing here, but I decided to skip that step. And uh, so it's all there. But let me run through uh, this list of 10 categories and just compare one to the other. Okay? Inclining churches are future-oriented, always looking ahead, while reclining churches are present-oriented, concerned about what's happening now. Now, what makes that problematic, possibly, is that when you're making decisions based on right now without regard for the future, you might be giving your future away. Okay, so the idea is don't ever do anything in the present that's going to, that's going to be uh, negative toward your future. All right, the declining church, of course, is past-oriented, wanting to get back to the way it used to be before it declined. So one of the things I'd like you to do as we walk through this list is, is even though we're going horizontally and in comparison, think of these in vertical categories. All right, because these these characteristics are going to are going to build on one another as we go down the chart. The inclining church is vision driven. There is a a great commission vision that is the true north of the church. Whatever we do as a church, whatever we decide, whatever resource we allocate, it's going to be directed toward moving toward great commission ministry. The reclining church is program-driven. You know, we've got this menu of programs, and our feeling is that whatever success we're having, it's because we have this menu of programs. So we're going to protect the programs. We're going to staff to programs. We're going to fund programs. Most of what happens in the life of the church is program-centric. Now, one thing that was kind of interesting, this past weekend, uh, I was working with uh, a church... And uh, I asked them uh, on Friday evenings, we do, you know, we do these things called Church Vitality Weekends. And on Friday even, uh, evening, we meet with uh, uh, staff and leaders, key influencers, 
And one of the questions I like to ask is, why are you here? Why are you at this church? What is so compelling about this church that you're here? And so they started calling out things. And, uh, you know, well, we're really friendly. Well, we've got great preaching. Well, you know, we have programs for everybody. Uh, yada, 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 yada. You know, typical kinds of things. And so, uh, so I, then I, here's the next question. I said, so, then when you talk to people in the community about this church, these are the things you share with them, right? And what do you think the reaction is there? No. There's this kind of blank look like, oh, I don't, really, I don't really talk to people that much in the community about my church. So at this point, I've got this list of things that they've mentioned. And so I asked them, who would find this list compelling? Who, when reading down this list, would say, wow, that looks like a church I'd like to go to? And almost invariably, they, they get the point that I'm pushing for, which is, what do you think it is? What do you think the point might be here? We need to do something differently. Who is drawn to a church that's filled with great programs? Other Christians like us. Right. Yeah, already Christian people, not the lost community. Mm -hmm. But see, that's what you get in a program-centric environment. It appeals to the already Christian if they're shopping for certain programming. But it really doesn't have much relevance to lost people mm -hmm. that you're trying to connect with. All right, the re declining church becomes structure-driven. In the absence of vision, in the absence of strategy, in the absence of programs, what's left? Structure. You know, we've got officers of the church, we've got committees, and we've got policies and procedures. So what happens is church leaders tend to keep the machinery running, keep having the meetings you know, doing all the things that structurally are in place, even though no real ministry is happening. Uh, it's just a natural thing. It's like, how do we know we're a church? Well, we, we do the stuff that churches do, even though we don't do it with much impact. All right, the inclining church is community-focused. The group of people that is primarily in view, the people out in the community we're endeavoring to reach, while the reclining church is focused on the congregation, those inside the church. Now, this is not an either-or, right? It's a both-and, but talk about uh, you know, default positions. The default position of the church is to be 100% in-reach oriented. You don't have to work at that. It just happens. Okay, so if you don't do anything intentionally, all of your ministry will be to the inside. So in order to minister outward, though, you have to really ramp things up and you have to keep that fire burning day after day after day after day. And the minute you take your eye off that ball, implosion. Okay, so even though we want some degree of balance here, we don't want to, it's not congregation or community. It's congregation and community. But you don't have to work hard to focus on congregation while you have to work tremendously hard to focus on community. So that's where the battle is fought. 
where the intentional effort is placed. The inclining church tends to be innovative, looking at new ideas, new ways of doing things. We're not changing our theology. We're not... uh, What's happening? Runaway PowerPoint. Okay. Who's serving who here? Okay. Um, While reclining churches tend to lapse into routine, things get very ordered. You know, everything is in template form. You just make sure you get the church secretary the names of the three songs by Thursday so they can get printed in the bulletin. You know, that kind of mindset. Uh, Systematic. Fill in the blank ministry. While declining churches tend to be complacent. Not so much like we don't care, but complacent like we don't have the wherewithal to make it different. It is what it is. Wish it was better, but it's not. Okay? All right, this next couple of categories, I'll put, I'm going to link these up. The inclining church will take high-risk faith, thereby will make faith decisions. Okay? An opportunity has presented itself. Uh, we don't really have everything in line. We don't necessarily have the people, the money, the talent, the resources. But we sense God's favor. We sense God's leading in this direction. So we're going to step out anyway and trust that God is going to be the God of the gap. How about that for a segue? Okay. Nice. All right. Now, the reclining church tends to have more of a low-risk faith and decision making is driven more by resources okay we don't mind taking a little bit of a chance but we're not going to put too much at risk and we want to make sure we don't do anything foolish so let's make sure we've got the right people the right dollars the right talent the right time the right whatever so we're 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 more careful now obviously Stewardship calls for that kind of thing, but taken to an extreme, we start to lose faith as if we've got to have all of our ducks in a row before we ever take a step forward. The declining church has a no-risk faith, don't want, to, don't want to make a wrong decision, don't want to lose any of our very, very shrinking resources, so we're trapped in indecision. The way I got started in revitalization ministry was uh, becoming pastor of a church of 13 people. Uh, One of the things they had done, they'd been without a pastor for three years. See, if only a transitional pastor had gone in ahead of me and straightened all this stuff out, right? Uh, Well, one of the things they had decided was that um, all decisions had to be unanimous, among the seven elders. I do the math here, folks. We got a church of 13 people with seven elders, structure driven. Okay? And every decision had to be unanimous. They were so fearful of making a wrong decision that they gave everyone veto power. Now, this is not a recipe for wise decision making, this is a recipe for indecision. Okay, trapped. All right. Uh, Inclining churches get people serving through their giftedness. 
You know, there's an awareness of what people bring to the table in terms of gifts, talents, skills, interests, passions, life experience. The human resource is the greatest resource of the church. Okay, while the reclining church, because of its program drivenness, uh, mobilizes people for ministry through simple slot filling. You know, you kind of do the math. We have this program with these three slots, this program with these two slots, etc., etc. We've got X number of slots to fill. So what we, what we kind of do is, you know, we grab the, the congregation by the collar and drag them through the grid of the slots with the hope that a live body will land in each slot. We're looking for program coverage which is a far cry from really mobilizing people according to calling and giftedness. All right? The declining church uh, gets people serving by default. You know, like, hey, it's your turn. I did that last time. I run into a lot of those kinds of churches where you've got, you know, because, because of the structure-drivenness of it, you've got more structure than you've got people sometimes. So I'll talk to a group of people about outreach and evangelism, and what I'll hear is, well, I just don't have time. Why? Well, I'm already serving on four committees. Doing what? Being a committee. You know, the goal of the committee is to be a committee. <laughs> Not really accomplishing anything. All right, when it comes to money, when it comes to resources, inclining churches think like an investor. More, more like a broker on behalf of the Lord. I'm investing kingdom resources for kingdom return. Think parable of the talents. You know, five brings five, two brings two. And the master says what? Well done, good and faithful servant. All right. In the reclining church, money is viewed as the fuel, the provider that, that fuels the programming, keeps the machinery running. In the declining church, money, other resources is the preserver. It keeps us alive for another six months, another year, another decade, another whatever. You know, there is this sense that, you know, if we just keep that door open long enough, maybe something different will just happen. Okay? All right, a couple more. The inclining church is always developing new leaders. Uh, one of the primary ministry efforts of the inclining church is leadership development. And here's, here's how that works. Think back to the idea of ministry capacity. When you're in an, a, an environment, a culture, where capacity is increasing, there's always room for another leader. And conversely, every time you develop another leader, the ministry capacity Increases. So this is actually kind of an upward spiral. While in the reclining church where things have leveled off, we're not really expanding anymore. We've got established leaders already in place. Making it very difficult for new leadership to surface. Now this is especially poignant today with all of the talk you hear about the lack of young adults in the church. Part of that problem 
is that it's, there's nowhere for the young adult to lead because baby boomers have calcified in leadership positions. Okay? I could talk about that for hours, but I won't. Okay? But just trust me. This is a very, very big deal. There, there is a, a bottleneck in the church today that is baby boomer leadership that's probably going to live a really long time. So we got to figure that one out. Uh, incumbent leadership is the nature of the declining church. That's established leadership that's been there forever. You see that a lot in the declining church where, you know, we've talked about some of that leadership culture that you walk into. You walk into a church as a transitional pastor and find that you've got this three or four or five incumbent leaders that just kind of are controlling everything. Very difficult to work through that. And then finally, the inclining church tends to grow by conversion because of all the above. While the reclining church, an early recline, might grow still uh, in early recline, but that growth is through transfer. And transfer growth, it can be a smokescreen because if, if we are growing by transfer, we perceive ourselves to be making progress when in fact we might just be rearranging the chairs. Okay, so it's important to delineate the nature of growth. If your church is growing, it's good to know the source of that growth. I had a pastor once uh, I was working with, or just having lunch with, 800-member church, growing leaps and bounds, and he's first getting exposure to some of these concepts. You know, I'm drawing life cycles on cocktail napkins, and we're having a little impromptu training session. So he says to me, so, where do you see our church on the life cycle? Clearly thinking that I was going to say, well, you guys would be like the poster church for incline. And I said, well, I see you dead center in recline. He was quite offended by that. Mm. Kind of ruined lunch, by the way. <laughs> but he said, you know, how could you possibly say that? He said, you know, we, uh, he said, you, you know that we've added 70 new members in the last quarter, right? I said, yeah, I did know that. I said, but did you know that 69 of them were by transfer? He did not know that. See, there's a, there's a difference. All right, and of course, declining churches are not growing. Now, here's, here's where this gets tricky. Not quite. Almost. Got to stay with me, Ken. Almost. If you were to draw a circle around the characteristics of recline... What you would have is the bullseye that most church leaders are shooting for. Because this is about stability, security, easy, comfortable. I mean, what's not to like? And there's nothing inherently evil about any of this. It's just that without intervention, it's going to tip to the backside of the life cycle. And we're not going to make a dent in the harvest. If you're serious about harvest, you've got to be thinking more inclined than reclined. I feel like when I went through seminary, 
in some ways I was prepared to manage a reclining church. I was not prepared to be sort of the entrepreneurial, pioneering, visionary driver of, an in, of a mission outpost, if you will. Okay? No slam on seminary. I loved seminary. But they can't do everything in three years, right? So we've got to get this other stuff someplace else. Any questions about this? We're going to take one more pass at the life cycle. But before I do that, just see if there's anything. All right, if you will uh, then look at that next page on page 11. What we're doing here is we're breaking incline and recline down further into two micro stages, okay? Emerging incline and developed incline, etc. So I just want to sh explain a bit about how churches drift through this life cycle, okay? Um, what happens is, as a, let's assume for a moment, particularly if your church was started off as a, as a church plant, it probably started at the beginning of a life cycle in kind of birth mode, and by necessity, a lot of the characteristics were inclining characteristics. So we might call that emerging incline uh, stage, we, we might call that uh, pure incline. Now, as much as a, I am a fan of incline, uh, this is not where you want to be. It's too stark. This is more, in my opinion, this would be more like a, uh, a parachurch ministry that only did outreach and evangelism. Okay? <coughs> so, the next step up, uh, developed incline. What we have is the I, large incline. Okay? The dominant flavor of this stage is incline, but in the background, recline has surfaced. So we're primarily, for example, future-oriented, but we are taking care of the present. We're primarily vision-driven, but we are putting our programming in place. We're primarily community-focused, but we're taking care of the congregation. So we've got a, a good balance. Emphasis on incline, but presence of recline. This is the most productive place on the life cycle to be. Now, as we drift further, uh, what happens is recline and incline switch position. Recline becomes the dominant force. Incline moves to the background. Still a very productive part of the life cycle, but a fatal step has been taken that's going to lead to the backside unless we intervene. Okay? So, without intervention, we drift to the backside of the life cycle. Now, what happens here is incline disappears. Recline remains dominant, but now decline begins to surface. Primarily reclining, secondarily declining. Now, this is a very dangerous spot on the life cycle. You see, here we are at the top of the life cycle, and over here, you know, recline and recline are dominant on both sides. So it seems like it's kind of the same. But over here in the background, we have incline, where over here in the background, we have decline. 
But because this is the face of this stage, unless you're paying attention to these dynamics, you, you just don't see it. You just kind of know somehow that it's not quite the same. Looks the same, but what's happened is incline has been replaced by decline. Again, left unchecked, we drop further into emerging decline where recline and decline switch position. Now we're dominantly declining, subordinately reclining. And left unchecked, ultimately, we go into pure decline or developed decline where everything is a declining characteristic. Now, my uh, experience of 20-some years now has shown me that the typical church leader sees the church as at least one degree more healthy than it actually is, sometimes two degrees more healthy than it actually is. Just, you know, rule of thumb. Just this last weekend, I was working with a church that's got a lot, a lot of really good things going for it. And, uh, but when we did the life cycle exercise, uh, I think we had, what do we have? 12 tables of leaders. And uh, 11 of those tables, no, let's take that back. 10 of those tables saw the church here while the other two saw the church here. But I promise you, before we started with this exercise, they would have thought of themselves over here somewhere. Okay? In fact, yesterday, well, Sunday when I, I preached at that church, I had probably eight or ten people come up to me at some point during the morning and make some comment about, you know, I was really surprised with that life cycle thing. But it happens every time, every time. Okay? Now, here's the deal. What you want to do is, let's, you know, regardless of where the church is on a life cycle, Let's say the church is, you know, early into the backside of the life cycle. What we do from there, you see, is we're going to cut that life cycle off and we're going to deliberately launch a new life cycle. That's, that's the, the philosophy of how this works. You know, regardless of where the church might be on the life cycle at the moment, that becomes the launching point for a new life cycle. And once we've launched a new life cycle, uh, we know these dynamics, so we don't allow it to drift into the backside again. Every couple years or so, we cut that life cycle off, launch a new life cycle, evaluate and launch. So the goal is not to try to come up with a never-ending season of incline. The goal is by intervention to craft one season of incline on top of another on top of another. And you do that by periodic evaluation and relaunch. But again, the principle, if you're doing this earlier in the life cycle, you're only having to make moderate adjustments. It's not like we're going to overhaul the church every three years. Okay? See how that kind of comes together? One final comment at the bottom of page 31. The life cycle is a one-way street. It only moves left to right. Yes, sir? I, uh, I hear you, but it's 
easier said than done. So it seems like what you're indicating is that we need to become more outreach oriented, evangelistic, and that breaks the cycle, whatever method we use. Right? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's certainly part of it. Is there any more? Well, I mean, the, the, yeah, there's a lot more under the how-to. Okay. Uh, and that's part of this afternoon. Okay. But uh, <clears throat> it's a both end. You know, it's like we're not going to abandon inreach, but if we're going to be serious about the Great Commission, about Acts 1-8, about as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, etc., etc., etc. If we're going to be serious about that, we've got to beef up outreach and evangelism. Uh, it, and it can't just be uh, 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 something we add on. It's got to be something that is central. Mm-hmm. Ken, would you advise sharing this life cycle information with the session, or would that yes. in away? No, I would advise the whole session participating yes. in, a, in a life cycle self-analysis. You know, what I find is that this is the point, you know, this is, this is kind of the right before lunch part of a full day of training with a given church. And what I find is that this is, this is the aha moment. This is the wake-up call. Uh, invariably, working with the church, uh, you know, it, it, people are very more or less, say, let's say, objective you know, they look at the theory of something or the philosophy of it and yay or nay, but then they hit this and they, then I'll ask, we'll stop and take time at each table, like I was saying on Saturday, each table spends time going through this exercise and identifying, you know, where are you on the life cycle? Mm-hmm. And can we get these materials to share with our church? And our yeah, yeah, we can make that happen. Great, thank you. And it was real good when Ken did that at our church. You'd inevitably have people at a table that would rank it, you know, way better. We're on the inclined side, we're on this side. Then there'd be someone that'd be, no, 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 we're, we're over here, and it would cause discussion. Mm-hmm. And we really, we not only did it when Ken was there, but we went through all this stuff another time mm-hmm. uh, to get people who had already been through it once so they could grasp a little bit more. But for people who had not gone through it, we did a, a separate, you know, another one so that we would increase the number of people who saw that, so there would be buy-in mm-hmm. for when we, were, when we were going to talk about, you know, what does it, what does it mean to, to have revitalization happen? Yeah. And that in itself, redoing it again, is kind of like a relaunch. Well, Ken actually it's told us it takes right? three times. So three that's times. What that says. <laughs> yeah. I quote, I quote Ken. Yeah. And, we're, and we're doing it a third, you know. Okay. Anyhow, we're working on Good it. Good deal. So. Yeah, I think it's really key and important, again, to emphasize what you said, that as pastors, we're trained to create recline mm-hmm. rather than the other way around. And so that we're, we're moving purposely to that dividing point of healthy, unhealthy. And that's the target range. That's the center of the target. That's what we as pastors have been trained to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that direction. Yeah, and I think congregations for the most part, if when they craft a job description for a pastor, mm-hmm. it's a declining job description. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we used to be able to get away with that in the American church back when our culture wasn't so screwed up. You know, when things like common sense and Judeo-Christian ethics and, you know, our culture was pro, 
pastor pro church pro this and that you know we could get away with being a passive church people would still show up but that that day has passed you know the idea of laborers in the harvest the harvest is not picking itself and coming to coming to church okay yeah all right so let me share one more thing with you then i guess it's going to be lunchtime huh uh, if you look on page 33, Bob mentioned uh, a SWOT analysis earlier, and uh, we, we use a version of that in this context, plus another type of analysis called a GRACE analysis. So, uh, you know, let me just uh, summarize this by saying that, you know, when you look, put all these pieces together, the, you know, the, the missional posture survey with the... Uh, life cycle analysis. Uh, when you do all these different things, throw in a natural church development survey or a few of the other survey kind of things that we do, you end up with a great deal of, of data. And it's, it's good to have that data, but at the same time, it can be overwhelming in, in, in its scope. Mm. And so... What we, what we do is like, like, how can we turn all of this raw data that we've gathered, how can we turn that into something functional? Well, the answer is to have church leaders run it through the grid of a SWOT analysis and then a GRACE analysis. And that produces a much smaller document that is workable. All right, so the idea of SWOT, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. That's a marketplace tool. The idea is to say, okay, what have we discovered about ourselves that is a ministry strength? What is a ministry weakness? What is a ministry opportunity? What is a ministry threat? And we articulate those things. So now we have uh, a way to manage that. Um, on the other hand, there is uh, the grace analysis, which sort of falls in line with the, the PTSD concept that Bob shared a little earlier. Um, just a couple of things to, to note. This grace analysis is something that I, that I have created, and it was just born out of observation over a lot of years. Here's the deal. Whenever there is change, there is loss. Whenever there is loss, there is grief. Even if it's a good change. You know, my family has moved over 1,500 miles four times in our ministry lives. And every single time we moved, we sensed God's calling to an, a new thing. And we were excited about the new thing. But it was still heart-wrenching to pull ourselves out of the old thing and not being with those people anymore, not doing that thing anymore. So even, even good change has this emotional impact. Well, what happens sometimes in a, a transitional situation is you've got folks that are looking at an opportunity for change. I mean, change is happening. There's an opportunity for moving things forward uh, and those who are sort of, let's call them change champions, their tendency is to feel like everybody should be on board with this. Everybody should feel great about this. What is your problem? Uh, and it's not necessarily that people are 
resistant, it's that they're grieving over what's being lost. And people, people progress at, at, at different speeds or paces, okay? And it's, it's unfair to expect a person who's experiencing grief to be super gung-ho about the new thing. So the idea is realize this is not necessarily resistance. This is just a person that needs some time to process. So give them that time. Don't force them to accept something they're not ready to accept. You know, there's, some, there's a balance there between leadership and care. All right. So the idea of the G is grief. Allow people the freedom to miss what they miss, to feel what they've lost, and adjust. The R is for reconciliation. This can get back to the idea of unresolved sin in the camp. A lot of times there are things that you uncover. You know, what happens in a transition is sort of like a lot of stones are getting unturned. And sometimes you find some ugly stuff under the stone. Okay, well, there might be something big enough that it really needs to be treated. Okay, it's not just, oh, people being people. It's an actual sin issue, or there's a breach of relationship between this family or that family, or perhaps uh, a former associate pastor was, was very unkindly fired, and it's left a ripple effect through the church. Well, when those things bubble up, we have to ask, is there something here that truly needs to be reconciled? If so, let's deal with it biblically. The A stands for alarm. What did we come across in our data search that is alarming, meaning that it's something troublesome that needs to be addressed immediately, or perhaps it's some opportunity that needs to be seized immediately before it goes away. Now, the C and the E are in kind of a different category. One of the things that is uh, sort of characteristic of assessment is folks have a tendency to gravitate toward the negative. Like the, the news is going to be all bad. Okay, that's one of the reasons church folks tend to not want to be assessed. It's kind of like, yeah, I know I've had this pain in my side for four years, but I don't really want to hear what the doctor has to say. Okay, well, what the C does, the C is for celebration. What have we discovered in the life of our church that is cause for celebration? Let's look back over the history of our church. Let's identify those special moments when the hand of God was clearly moving. Some wonderful things happened. Let's, let's make a note of that and let's celebrate that. The news is not all bad. It's not all negative. Flipping that around, as we look toward the future, what do we see that's worth getting excited about? Okay? One of the questions I ask churches uh, uh, is, uh, if I'm working with a church that's obviously declining, one of, the, one of the workshops I do says, if your church were to continue exactly like it is, uh, where would your ministry be in five years? 
Okay, that's one of those look in the mirror scary moments. Okay, but uh, in a case of transition, you know, that's not always the case. You're usually not in a case of super dire circumstances. So, yeah, you want people to be realistic about problems. You want them to address the issues and, and uh, reconcile what needs to be reconciled, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you also want to look ahead and say, yeah, but these are the opportunities that lie ahead of us. This is where we could be as we look down the line. So let's celebrate the victories of the past. Let's get excited about potential victories in the future while we're dealing with these other issues at the same time. So when you put all that together, I think you can get a, a very healthy outcome from the assessment process. So I will pause here and see other other, yes? How long should grief be allowed to take place? Um, 20 minutes. No. Uh, it kind of depends on what, what, what is that grief costing you? You know, the way I look at it is, uh, you know, if it's, if it's going on for six months, a year, uh, with a given person, uh, you know, there will come a time where, yeah, like enough's enough, we need to move on. But what I kind of look at is if it's a grief that is somewhat self-contained, it's not spilling over into influencing other things, I'm inclined to sort of give a little more grace than if that grief is manifesting as sabotage and interrupting this and that. Another, another, along the same line, uh, sometimes churches are like super busy when they're trying to keep all this programming running, but they don't really have the guns to pull it off. And so I recommend a, a, a deprogramming. Well, what do you do if you've got some program that, you know, four people in the church think it's the greatest thing ever, uh, but it's not really dialed into a new vision it's not really part of the future my question would be well well what kind of resourcing is that activity pulling from the pool and if it's minimal i'm inclined to say look if those people love that let them have it it's not hurting anything but if it's taking away vital resources from some something else that's more important then we need to sit down eyeball to eyeball and work this out. So give grace where you can, but don't let it, uh, don't let it handcuff moving forward.